Welcome back, everyone, to the Keys Weekly Sports Wrap with Coach McDonald, the only place to get your Florida Keys prep sports news. You can find this podcast every Thursday at the at keysweekly.com. Please share and like. You can find me, Coach McDonald, on Facebook at Florida Keys and Key West High School Sports History. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast today. We have a lot to talk about. I've been looking forward to the release of this one. But first of all, let's talk about Hurricane Ian. For the most part, it looks like the Florida Keys was spared. Key West did suffer a lot of flooding. I know the lower Keys had some flooding and some wind damage. Marathon took water on the ocean side the first night. And the upper Keys experienced flooding also. So I hope everybody's okay, number one. But obviously, the people in the middle of the state, Fort Myers... Everybody over there, good luck to them. I hope everyone is uh, helping out people in need over there, donating when they can. Okay, so very, very, very hoping for that community to come together and be able to rebuild. Now, as far as Florida Keys sports news goes, we lost a lot of games last week due to the hurricane. Over 15 games, matches, and meets scheduled for Monroe County were unable to be played due to Hurricane Ian. And it looks like for the most part, they are not going to be made up. The big news would be Key West High School. We talked to Coach Hughes last week on the podcast about his district. So he's in a district. All three teams in his district, with the exception of Key West High School, is located in Fort Myers. So it's going to be interesting. The ability of these schools to get back onto the field and play is going to be questionable as the season moves on. Now, if you guys... Recall, we all could use for a reference uh, Irma, Hurricane Irma. I remember it a couple years ago when Hurricane Irma hit, it was relatively early in the season. I think it was about week two or three when we were hit by it. And we were able to, in Marathon, we were able to, I think two or three weeks later, we ended up playing again. And that leads us. And as I recall, our first game past uh, Irma was Coral Shores. But we're going to talk about that rivalry in a little bit. So now you have Key West High School and their three district opponents are all in Fort Myers. So I don't know how the FHSAA is going to handle that, how quickly those teams are going to be able to get back and how Coach Hughes and the Key West High School Conks are going to be able to have their district games. So I'll keep you guys posted on that. I'll be talking to Coach Hughes and Key West about that and I'll let you guys know in future episodes. So Key West was not able to play football last week, but Marathon High School and Coral Shores were both able to play their games. Both teams won. Marathon winning 36 to nothing against Bridge, Bridge Prep Academy uh, in Miami. And Coral Shores winning a big matchup with Ransom 21-7. So I'm going to break down these two games for you right now. First game we're going to talk about is Marathon High School. Like I said, they go up to Miami last Friday and they play the upstart New team, new school. I think last year was maybe their first year, Bridge Prep Academy. Marathon goes up on the charter bus. You know, some of you guys might have gone up in the yellow school bus, but Marathon took the charter bus up to Miami, and they ended up playing Bridge Prep Academy. Bridge Prep Academy starting out brand new program, working hard, but they were really no match for the rushing attack of the Marathon Dolphins. Malachi Hawkins started out. I think he scored three touchdowns in that game. Bunch of guys got to run the ball. Defense played tough. And, you know, game was over. Got back on the bus. Made it home to Marathon. Everybody's good. Looking towards the big game next week against Coral Shores High School. Now, speaking of Coral Shores High School, 
if there was a game of the week, it would have been last week. It, you know, Coral Shores only has one loss on their record. They're playing at home against longtime rival Ransom Everglades. Ransom Everglades coming off the week prior to beating Marathon 48-8. So you're thinking we're going to have a big matchup here. The Coral Shores defense has given up, I think, one touchdown in the last couple games. Defense has been playing really well. High-powered Ransom offense against the Coral Shores defense. Playing at home, you know Coach Holly's having his team ready. They have a big crowd there. And Ransom comes and Coral Shores comes and they are battling that game out. I think it was 7-7 at the tie, uh, at the halftime. I would listen to it coming home from the marathon game. Actually watch a film with the marathon coaches uh, this past Sunday. And it was a battle of wills. Coach Holly's team against Ransom Everglades, both teams fighting it out. And Ransom was able to pull it out 21-7. So now this week... We have what is called the Battle of the Keys coming up. And we're going to talk about that with our guest today, Rich Russell. The Battle of the Keys. The first time Marathon and Coral Shores played was the first year Marathon had high school tackle football in 1970. Coral Shores wins the first four matchups. 1974, Jim Sikora, if you know him, comes to town. It's his first year teaching at Marathon. He's coaching the football team. He actually leads Marathon to their first win against Coral Shores in 1974, 22-0. The big senior on Coral Shores was Rich Russell. He was the punter, defensive end, tight end. He was a senior. He ends up signing at University of Miami after he graduates. He's on that team that loses to Marathon. Marathon wins the next couple. This is a series. This is a old-school, friendly rivalry that goes back years. So Marathon wins a couple years. Coral Shores wins a couple years. It's a super big game, and it's happening this week. And today's guest is going to give us his insight on it, and that is Coach Rich Russell. If you've been in the Keys long enough and you've followed high school sports, you know Rich. He's coached a number of sports, uh, football. I know he's coached baseball. He's been the athletic director as long as I can remember. And I've been here for 25 years. He has to be the one of, if not the highest tenured or longest worked for Monroe County schools, the longest of anybody in the County. It can't even be close. His first year teaching in Monroe County, I think he told me it was 1979. So you're going to get a wealth of knowledge about the Coral Shores Marathon rivalry from him growing up in the Upper Keys uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. His first memory is Hurricane Donna. You guys know that's 1960. What it was like back in the day, and we're going to take it all the way up to today. So the Coral Shores Marathon game is going to be tomorrow at Coral Shores. I hope everybody can go to it. They've played a total of 52 times. Coral Shores has the lead, 27-25. So this rivalry can go either way. Throw the record books out. It doesn't matter who the favorite is because this game defines a lot of teams. They This game, Marathon Coral Shores, if you win it, no matter what else has happened, the season's a good season. And it's a friendly rivalry. But each team wants to beat each other, and it's the biggest game of the year for both. So enjoy the podcast with with Rich Russell. I hope to see you guys all at the game 
tomorrow in Coral Shores. But if you're a Key West fan, obviously you're going to go to the Key West game. But um, best wishes to everybody. Hope you guys did well in the storm. Hopefully, if you had some damage, it's a quick recovery. And um, good luck to everybody out there. And I hope this might take your mind off of it. Okay, so Coach Rich Russell coming up next. Thank you. I'm very lucky here at the Keys Weekly Sports Wrap to be able to talk to a lot of, I'm going to say the word legends in the Florida Keys. And we've just started this podcast and I've already talked to many amazing coaches. And today we're going to talk to an amazing athletic director. He's probably, I'm going to say this, the longest tenured person in Monroe County schools right now. Um, And that is Coral Shores Athletic Director Rich Russell. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, uh, certainly appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, work with you on the, on the podcast. Well, how this is going to work, you know, like with Coach James from Key West, and I told you guys out there that Coach James is someone that I really want to bring on time time and time again. And we could talk about different decades and different sports and different teams. And right now it's football season, and I want to introduce to you, if you don't know him, which is highly doubtful, is – not only is he the athletic director at Coral Shores, he coached football, he coached basketball, he was a student there, and he is from the Upper Keys, and that is Rich Russell. Rich, can we let's talk about all the way from the beginning. Tell me about like your earliest memories in the Upper Keys and your family background. Well, I'll start with my family background because uh, it's, it's rather extensive when it comes to the Keys, and it involves. Uh, what, Used to be Kivaka, now Marathon. Uh, my my family were uh, loyalists, and so at the time of the revolution, they were summarily uh, dismissed from the Carolinas. We had a number of plantations in the Carolinas, and we went to the Luther. We went to uh, Harbor Island in uh, the Luthers, and then in uh, 1838, we, my family, my great great grandparents, that was uh, Marianne and Richard Russell. They sailed to Key West, spent a brief time there, and then later in 1838, they relocated to Key Vaca. And we lived in Marathon, or what was in Key Vaca. Uh, family lived there until 1854. And uh, then in 1854, they sailed north and uh, became the first settlers of uh, Upper Matacumbi. And um, we would have uh, the original land grant uh, for us was... Uh, 163 acres, and it was from where Whale Harbor is, on uh, south about a mile or so. Uh, so we had about a mile of property on both the ocean and the bay. And needless to say, we don't have that now. <laughs> but they were the original pine. We were the first settlers of the Upper Keys, and uh, you know there were a lot of things that went with that, including as we're talking today, uh, dealing with Ivan. Uh, we we dealt with a number of storms. And uh, to that end, my uh, my family had reached the number of 53 by the time the 1935 hurricane hit. And uh, of those 53, nine of them went up to the plantation key to stay uh, to, to you know to sort of wait out the storm. And of the remaining uh, folks, uh, 38 died, including my grandparents. My dad was a one of the uh, few survivors, and he was. Um, he was very, you know, he was, he was hurt. In fact, thought to be perished. Uh, a couple of Red Cross workers found him. He was covered halfway with seaweed and, uh, 
they put a body bag down and one of the one of the workers said i think he's breathing so thank god he was and, and if he weren't i probably wouldn't be doing this interview <laughs> yeah for sure for sure so the 1935 hurricane uh, many people don't know was probably the obviously the most devastating hurricane in the florida keys history and it was just unbelievable correct me if i'm wrong i remember reading even in the 60s they were still finding cars that were victim of the storm surge with victims inside it's true and to that end sean they they really don't have a fixed number on on how many people died, a number of folks, uh, about half of them were veterans of World War One, mm-hmm. who were down here working on uh, on the overseas, not really the overseas highway, they were building the connecting bridges between Lower Matacombe and, and uh, going down to Big Pine Key. Um, and again, I mentioned that they really don't know how many people died because some of those veterans, they were like World War veterans who had been involved in the bonus army as you remember the march on washington mm-hmm. in, in uh, 1932 and so forth and fdr assigned them on, under the wpa down here and they uh, a lot of them actually had two dog tags they were collecting a pair of checks there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of incredible stories about those folks and uh, just you know you could fill volumes of uh of the stories of the survivors and lord only knows of the, you know the perils of, of those who didn't make it so so you fi- you finally come along in the upper keys and what what are your earliest uh childhood memories really growing up in the upper keys back then well i i hate to stay on the same thing but my earliest recollection honestly was hurricane donna i was three year old three years old at the time and uh my dad as i mentioned before was a survivor and so he was given a red cross house he was 16 years old when he was orphaned and uh but his uh, his uncles uh, signed up for him or you know, agreed to be his guardian, and as such, he became eligible for a Red Cross house, which was you know they're basically fortified to handle any storm. But at that time, we had added a, a, a large Florida room and living room and, the, and a master bedroom and bath, and we also built a, an adjacent two-car garage. And uh, while the the original house was fine. Everything else, those, the portions that were made of CBS or concrete block, uh, basically were rubble. Um, and, and we had water about uh, about six and a half feet in the house. So thankfully, we had left. We sort of learned the lesson from uh, the 1935. But we returned to, to find a, a house that was certainly in shambles. And uh, I know a lot of folks down in Marathon can identify with that, having gone through uh, Irma. Yeah, absolutely. And Hurricane Donna was 1960, correct? That was that was the year that that Hurricane Donna hit. And I know it affected the Upper Keys immensely and Marathon to some extent. So back then, it's 1960. Where did you guys evacuate to? Did you guys go to Miami? Where did you guys stay? We had family in Fort Lauderdale and mm-hmm. uh, aunt and uncle and we went and stayed with them. And again, I have very little relax, uh, you know, I recall of my being three years old, right. three years old, but I do remember coming back and, uh, you know, there was seaweed all through the house and everything. And I remember my mom sort of, I guess, you know, creating the, the desired atmosphere said, you need to dig through that and find some treasures. <laughs> so I can remember digging through uh, seaweed, which was, you know, throughout the house and obviously covered the yard. And we found, uh, we found a number of things that, you know, 
that escaped during the storm. So, so moving forward then, you know, Keys Weekly Sports Wrap, you are the athletic director, you have a background in sports. What was the youth sports scene like in the upper keys then talking about early to mid sixties? What, what was that world like? Well, we started, uh, there had always been a little league, um, well, I should go back and say there had been a softball league and there had been a little league and that was played. The field was down at uh, across where the post office is now. And it was actually our family's estate. And we had an area that was dedicated. And then in the 1963, 62, they started up a, a, a more organized league. And we had two teams from Amarada, two teams from Tavernier, and two teams from... Key Largo. At that time, it was actually Newport. And uh, we played at what they call Russell Park. And it was, that was the area that is now Island Community School or Island Christian School, formerly Island Christian School. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the parcel right across the street from like the, the Chesapeake. And there was both the Little League uh, field and then a Pony League field there. So, and by the way, this is throwing out names, but uh, one of the guys who was a, a rather um, common spectator was Ted Williams. He was a yeah. resident here. And uh, anytime we had a banquet or whatever, he was a featured speaker and he helped to underwrite a lot of our equipment because he was at the time advertising for Sears. Yes. I have, I have seen some of those ads before and for our listeners out there, Ted Williams, one of the legendary baseball players spent a lot of time. Was it in Isla Mirada coach? Is that where he was yes, located sir. out? He of? had a place here in Amrata. Uh, he bought one late in his playing days. I, I mean, he, he'd been down here a bunch, but uh, he ultimately bought a place right by the Islander and then later would move over to the Bayside um, street. That's now called Ted Williams way. And that's about mile marker 82 and a half. So people have some reference. And uh, he lived here, you know, well, let's see. I guess he lived here for a couple decades. And then uh, relocated to Homestead Springs because the tarpon were bigger up there. Oh, is that it? Really? That's why he left? To get in search of bigger tarpon? It really was. He was an avid uh, fisherman and the, the, the consummate competitor. And uh, there were a number of 200 and 225-pound, you know, fish up there. But, um, yeah, in the interim, you know, he was he was here in the mainstay. Uh, I think he did go back and coach a couple of years in the league. He managed the Washington Senators for a couple of years. But that really wasn't his cup of tea. You know, he was, uh, he was such a perfectionist and, and was so committed to the game. And he didn't find the same with a lot of, with a lot of folks that he – he tried to work with and probably didn't have an endearing personality for everybody. He could, uh, he could be a little bit cantankerous. And I, I say that in, in all honesty, he was wonderful to me. He was real good friends with a couple of my uncles. And so he spent a lot of time working with my, my swing. And uh, I ended up being his uh, caddy when he played golf and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I'm not going to say anything bad about him, but uh, I can understand for those writers and, some of the fans in Boston who found him to be difficult, you know, there was that side of him. But uh, at the same time, he was—he couldn't have been nicer to, to me and, and my family. Um. So, what was the scene like then? Leaving elementary school, did you guys have junior high? Was it a middle school? Did you guys have sports there? Well, actually, when I started at Coral Shores, um, they 
we had a kindergarten that was in Amarada, but started at Coral Shores in first grade, and it was 1 through 12 at the time. It later would become K through 12 before it would split and the elementary and middle schools be developed in both Key Largo and, uh, and Plantation Key. Those feeder schools didn't come around until the late 70s, I guess. I'm just I'm, it's off the top of my head. And I, uh, I was a 75 graduate, so... Um, so you, you know, went I, to you went to school at Coral Shores basically from first grade to twelfth grade. I did. I spent twelve years there as a student, and and this is my forty fourth year as a teacher, coach, administrator, <laughs> whatever. So the aggregate, I guess, is fifty six years. Mm, wow, that's that's you've had the most schooling for sure of anybody. You have a, a lot of different PhDs after that many years. Um, <laughs> so you're sure you, what PhD would stand for, but. Yeah, you you're a graduate of Coral Shores class of '75. Um, yes, sir. I, I know you played football there, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But did you play any other sports there? I did. I played uh, I played football uh, for four years. I played basketball for three years. Um, I didn't play my sophomore. I started on the varsity as a ninth grader, and I may have been the worst player I'd ever played at Coral Shores. I, and, that's, <laughs> and that's not humility. We just weren't very good, and uh, I was tall. Uh, right. But my dad was uh, very sick and would pass away when I was a sophomore. And uh, I came back and played a little bit as a junior, but little would be the operative. I, I you know, I was uh, uh, watching more from the bench than anything else. Not like your son, who was, a, you know, a star in both football and baseball, yeah. or basketball and, and football. He, mm-hmm. uh, I enjoyed watching him play basketball. And I know he averaged 17, 18 points a game and was a horse on the boards, but yeah. I could hit the boards a little bit, but that was it. And then I played uh, uh, baseball for five years. I, I was started uh, as a catcher in eighth grade and uh, split time at catcher in first base for three years. And then uh, the last two years, I played exclusively beyond the plate. So Coral Shores High School, your football coach was a gentleman by the name of Howard Duncan, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your memories of him? Uh, coach was uh, he was sort of old school. He was from uh, Eastern Tennessee. He'd actually played at East Tennessee State, and uh, but you know a tremendous guy uh, in the way. And first of all, as both an instructor, but uh, maybe more so. And this is important to me. You know, as a role model, uh, he was. You know, he really promoted uh, discipline, self discipline, and he promoted goal orientation and. Um, you know, a work ethic and commitment and all the things that, you know, are endemic of a good athletic experience. I think he, he sort of, uh, you know, he modeled those things. He promoted those things. And I think we all benefited from having the opportunity to play under him. And what I'm always fascinated most, like I told you, you know, I'm doing this. I love doing this podcast because I get to ask the questions I want. When you're in high school, I'm always fascinated with what was the offense? What type of offense did you guys run? And what kind of defense did you guys run? Well, defensively, we ran a straight 50. And most of it was covered three. And it was it was real basic, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we didn't make too many modifications. Of course, in part because the offenses were pretty you know, pretty standard. You didn't get as many multiple sets as you do now. And, uh, you know, we would, we would shift out. And if they came out in twins, which happened so seldom, we, we would slide the end out, make them like a plugger or outside linebacker. But um, that was it. And, and with respect to the offense, 
we pretty much stayed uh, stayed with an eye, and uh, there were times that we'd go into a power eye, bring a bring a third or fourth back in, and just go power. And uh, you know, it would be with uh, you know, it'd be with two tight ends at times. So uh, talking about crowding the box on both sides, <laughs> you know, the ball the the game would be played within twelve yards of the ball. Yeah, so standard fare. It seems like that that time period probably, like I graduated uh, class of 91 and I played football at Miami Springs for Buddy Goins. But during that time period, it seems like 70, maybe to the early 2000s or maybe late 90s, that seemed to be the thing. Most teams were based out of a 50 and most teams were running I formation or a pro set, maybe. I mean, you never saw, very rarely did you see spread or anything like that that and it was run based in high school and I remember it would either every week you'd either see a 50 or you'd see a 4-3 so I always I find that interesting your your senior year I think it was your senior year you end up with an 88 yard punt so you were a punter and did you say you were a defensive lineman coach in high school I played uh, I played tight end and I played Mike back middle backer okay uh, in high school and then I also punted and and According to the Miami media, you know, U of M media got it up the state in plenty as a junior and led the nation as a senior. Impressive. But, and part of it, uh, and I mean, that sounds impressive, but if you knew, uh, you know, where we were playing and all that kind of stuff, we had a prevailing wind out of the ocean and, and uh, the field was oriented east and west. So, uh, yeah, in that particular game, we were kicking out of our end zone. It, it, it looked really pretty cool because we're kicking out of our end zone and kicked it out at the two. And it went 88 yards, and uh, and then also had an 80 yarder in the same game. But uh, you know what will be lost in that is I had a, t- a 29 yarder into the wind. So. <laughs> well, at least you're honest. Um, let me ask you something. Back then, was the football field roughly in the same place that it is today at Coral Shores? That's a great question. It, it was in the same general area. It's, it's uh, currently it's a little bit east of where we were, but the orientation was east and west at the time. Now it's more north and south or runs parallel with the shoreline. Oh, okay. So after your senior year, you're a three-sport athlete, not specializing in basketball, but <laughs> you you end up, uh, I'm sure you're recruited by a number of schools and you choose University of Miami. So in 1975, what was the recruiting process like for you? Well, it was, it was still a wonderful process. I, I had the Good fortune to take a number of trips. I ended up uh, um, whittling things down to uh, my top five were North Carolina State, Penn State, Kentucky, Florida, and uh, and University of Miami. And ultimately, I made the decision. I, I, I was trip to Florida on uh, let's see, it was it was a weekend after Thanksgiving, and uh, I went up there with four or five uh, recruits from the Miami area. And um, actually, one of them was Earl Morrill's son. The other one was uh, Rock Rote, who went on broadcast for CBS. And his son, his father was Kyle Rote, mm-hmm. uh, out of Michigan, as a matter of fact. But they, um, anyway, went up there and, you know, I found myself, I, I really was conflicted when I went there. I wasn't sure who, which of the two. I, I narrowed it down to Florida and Miami. I wanted to stay fairly close to home, if possible. Uh, and I ended up... Uh, finding myself cheering for Miami and the, the Florida Miami game. And so that sort of made my decision easy. 
with respect to football, I, w- I still wasn't totally convinced that I was going to do football. I was, I was blessed to have a, an appointment to West Point, and my dad was decorated military from World War II and thought was, you know, it'd be nice to go in and be an officer. And then uh, the other thing, I, I really enjoyed writing, believe it or not. And uh, our journalist, I was an editor of a newspaper for a few years, and our, our sponsor forced us, I guess, to join these or to enter uh, uh, writing contests, uh, most of them based in Columbia. And I ended up uh, being fortunate enough to win four Colombian titles. So I had a full ride to uh, Columbia for writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, I really thought I might want to go into journalism. And then uh, as things progressed, by the end of my senior year and, and writing all kinds of letters here and there, I, I found I, I got really tired of writing and I could eliminate that one real quick as a possibility. So, so then you end up deciding to go to university of Miami and you're at university of Miami from 1975 to 1979. And, and you were there right at the, the beginning of the changes at university of Miami, your first two years, uh, your head coach is Carl Selmer. Uh, what are your memories of him and how did he recruit you? And, and what was he like? Well, interesting enough, Carl Summer was an, uh, appointed by the guy who I signed with. I signed with Pete Elliott, mm-hmm. who'd been a coach at, at Oklahoma and, you know, as a legend in college football. Uh, he was with Bud Wilkinson in that group. And uh, Pete Elliott is a, was at one time, I think, the head of the Collegiate uh, Football Hall of Fame. But uh, anyway, Coach Elliott was a, a tremendous recruiter, but he stepped down and, and uh, Carl Selmer took his place. And actually was only there, I think, my freshman year. Uh, we were on a way, we were out in Houston, the rumor was going around that he was being replaced. And he ultimately would be replaced by um, Lou Saban. Mm-hmm. And Lou Saban came to us from the Buffalo Bills. He'd, if you look at his career, he was somewhat nomadic when yep. he was successful everywhere he went. He would, he'd been the coach of the year in the old AFL for the Denver Broncos before going to the Bills, and he was with the Bills before us, and he had OJ in the 2006 yards and, and was the coach of the year for the Buffalo Bills and what was in the old AFL before they joined uh, with the AFL and uh, before they became the uh, joined forces with the NFL. You know, and, for, for, for years... Everybody talks about the University of Miami and the impact that Howard Schnellenberger had on it. But, you know, a lot of people talk about that Lou Saban, he was the first instrument of change there. Because, as you know, during the the 60s and the late 60s and the early to mid 70s, there was even a question if the University of Miami should have a football team. And they were really, really low. Everybody wants to credit Schnellenberger for making the change, but a lot of people point to the recruiting that Saban did and the, and the changes he made at first there in Coral Gables. What do you, what do you think about that? I couldn't agree more with uh, with your statement, Sean. You've, you uh, obviously are very knowledgeable about the situation, and it's not at all to think anything like Coach Schnellenberger because he did a wonderful job of taking it to the next level. Uh, but Coach Saban had a, an amazing eye for talent, and uh, – the class that he picked up, you know, before before leaving included, uh, I mean, it's like a who's who uh, mm-hmm. when you go through it. But uh, obviously, I guess the, uh, I mean, Sky and Nick was, there were like eight or nine of those guys that went on and played ball. But, um, you know, the, the marquee name, obviously, was Jim Kelly. Right. And uh, he recruited Jim 
out of Pennsylvania. He was being recruited by Paterno as a linebacker. He was a, Jim's a tough kid and tough kid, tough guy. And, uh, but, uh, he wanted to play quarterback. And so, you know, coach went up there and, and basically literally went and saw him in person. He and his brothers and his parents and it's a very close family situation. He endeared himself to the family. And next thing you knew, Jim was coming down as a, as a quarterback. And, and then the guy who, you know, developed him as a quarterback was coach Schnellenberger. And, you know, he was sort of the, the quarterback whisperer and, uh, well, he had yeah. Earl Morrill too, correct? I was going to say, Earl Morrill yeah. came over as a volunteer coach, and then, you know, Trestman was there. We had, mm-hmm. we really had a, a tremendous, a, you know, offensive group. But yeah, Earl uh, Morrill worked with, with them, uh, you know, extensively on the mechanics. And he was, you know, I had, I had a chance to work with him in a couple camps, and he was a guru. He really was. But if you look at Coach Snellenberger's track record, I mean, he had, you know, at Alabama, he had Joe Namath, he had Kenny Stabler with the Dolphins, he had, you know, Greasy, he had, and and then we would go on the same year to uh, to sign both uh, Bernie Kosar and, and Vinny Testaverde. So, mm-hmm. yep. had a pretty good eye for talent and also the ability to develop it. Now, now you're, you're jumping ahead a little bit for me because I had some questions about you, for you, about some guys when you first got to the University of Miami. They had a lot of incredible defensive linemen, um, Don Latimer, Eddie Edwards, Gary Dunn. They all ended up playing in the NFL. But there was a guy from Key West there. His name was George Hallis. Can you tell me? Do you remember him? Can you tell me about him a little bit? Absolutely not. George is a dear friend and actually played against him in high school. He was a year ahead of me, and he played defensive end. Um, and by the way, George looks like he could still go play, and he's 66 years old now. Mm-hmm. He comes to all of our reunions. He stayed on. Uh, he got drafted uh, by, by the Seattle. Seahawks. Yeah, yeah, by Seattle Seahawks. And uh, I had to tell you a couple of funny stories about him because we we messed with George sometimes during the draft. <laughs> it was a different era. But um, now George is just you know an outstanding ball player. Again, we played a fifty, which is a quasi thirty. So he had the ability to you know covered mostly in zone. We didn't cover as much man with pluggers in those days. But, uh, you know, he was, he was an outstanding athlete, tough as nails, uh, a real devotee of the weight room in, in the days that not everybody was married to the weight room. He was, you know, he was passionate about it. And, and later would come back as our assistant weight coach at the, at the University of Miami. He's been a personal trainer ever since. Wow. So were there times where um, you guys are both at University of Miami and you're riding back down home together? He's dropping you off on the way to Key West or anything like that? You know, there were times that he came home, he came back with me. Uh, I would come down, uh, I'd come down quite a bit, uh, you know, well, out of season and so forth. And we would, there was usually a, a list of folks that wanted to go shrimping with me we had i had uh bridge nets that would cover the catwalks <laughs> we'd either go to whale harbor or down at the tea table and um you know we'd, we'd head back up it was a it was a rite of passage each week i think and we'd head up back up with anywhere from sometimes a little 25 pounds of shrimp but we had as many as 500 pounds of shrimp and uh we had some great times and george was certainly part of them and by the way, another guy that was with that group, like, you know, yeah, I actually got moved to defensive line along with punting in college before I got hurt my sophomore year. 
And uh, one of the guys that I played with, we played freshman ball together, was Don Smith. And uh, Smitty was in my class along with Otis Anderson. Yes. And, and Smitty was the first-round draft pick. I want to say the 16th pick in the first round by the Atlanta Fal- Falcons. And uh, Otis Anderson, O.J. Anderson, as he went mm-hmm. on to be, uh, would go on to be drafted in the first round. He was an earlier pick, what maybe eighth or ninth round, eighth or ninth pick of the first round, and Otis would uh, would lose the rushing record, a rushing title, his his uh, I'm sorry, his rookie year to uh, that, that guy from uh, that guy from the Bears. Now Walter Payton had the late game; they were playing mm-hmm. at four o'clock, and Otis had had finished up. He finished up the uh, with six sixteen hundred five yards. Uh, with the earlier game and they they left Walter in there to run and he ended up with 1,610 yards. So he got beat by five yards for the rushing record as a, as a rookie, but needless to say, Otis was a a standout uh, out of West Palm beach. And uh, Smitty was out of Tarpon, out of of Tampa and Tarpon Springs. Yeah. He was a stud. I hadn't seen Smitty in a while. And um, he came to our last reunion a little bit earlier than that. We were, uh, we had to get together down here in the Keys with him and some other, some other teammates. Uh, Gary host Gary Dunn hosted it. OJ Anderson also went on to win, I think, two Super Bowls with the Giants and then be the the main running back in a couple of their of their Super Bowl championship teams. Yeah, if memory serves me correctly, he, in 1991 he was the mm-hmm. MVP of the Super Bowl for the Giants. So, and he was playing, by the way, with. Uh, Another guy that I actually had a chance to work with, coach a little bit, and that's Jim Burt. Yeah. Playing, playing uh, the nose for them. Good old Jim Burt. He was a member of the University of Miami team. And how about, you know, I wanted to ask you about, so you have Saban, you have Selmer, Saban, and then Coach Nellenberger comes in, and they have that, you guys have that big win at Penn State where Jim Kelly and, and you know Jim Burt and those guys. Um, what was like? I, I told you I, I grew up in Miami, and I remember reading about the legend of uh, Lester Williams, who played defensive lineman there. What are your memories of him? Well, I had a chance to work a little bit with Lester too. Um, Lester was just an incredible athlete. He came out of Carroll City, and uh, you know he he came in and, and helped a little bit right away. We had arguably. You know, we thought the best defensive line coach in the in the uh, in the country, and Harold Allen. And Harold had been the head coach. Uh, this is a nice little segue. He'd been the head coach at Key West High School. Uh, had that good old conk accent, mm-hmm. uh, just, and was revered by all of us. And, and you can go right through. Uh, you mentioned some of the the first round draft picks. You know, uh, my first year it was well, my first year it was Gary, and um, you know we had two guys drafted off of that team from the defensive line. And then Eddie Edwards was the next year and he was the third pick in the round, first round. And the next year was Don Latimer who played nose. And yep. he went to the Broncos as somewhere, I want to say in the middle teens, maybe late teens. And then Smitty was my year. And then, you know, our, our number two and number three guys were playing in the league. So coach Allen had an incredible eye for talent. And, uh, you know, most of the time I would have been, distraught being moved from tight end to defensive <laughs> defensive line but it was like uh you know i was i was thrilled about it and the chance to learn underneath them and i wish you know obviously i would have loved to have stayed on and, and had the opportunity to play but uh i blew out my knee and and uh 
they really didn't have an answer for, for my situation in those days. I had a, uh, a patella. I, I don't have a patella track. It was genetic uh, defect. And so I had what they call a floating kneecap. And it ended up on the side of my leg, and they decided, <laughs> my knee went time, mm-hmm. and they decided that uh, it was a good time to consider being a, a coach. Yeah, well, that is, that's going to segue to our next spot because um, in 1979, you leave University of Miami. So you graduate. Do you go, I know you become the head football coach at Coral Shores in 81. Do you go right to Coral Shores after you graduate from University of Miami or do you do anything else? I did. I came back and uh, Coach Duncan had agreed to stay on. Uh, he agreed with our principal stay on two years and be be more or less my mentor. He, he more or less turned it over to me, but, um, you know, he was, which was a tremendous blessing. Again, it, you know, you, I'm sure you felt the same way when you left college or whatever. You felt like you had the, you mm-hmm. pretty much invented the game or something and, <laughs> you know, needed to be grounded and get humbled a little bit. And that, both of those things happened. Coach was uh, terrific about giving me, you know, give me some room and, and let me make mistakes and then, uh, you know, working on correcting those things. And the other thing that happened during that first year back, uh, which would have been uh, the 79th season, is we had at Miami, we had a, a defensive end coach um, had a health issue and had to resign. And so I got a call from Doc Malleus, who was our AD and a good friend of mine. And uh, Coach Snellenberger had extended that wanted to know if I wanted to come back and, and coach the defensive ends. And, uh, you know, that was really sort of a crossroads, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not uh, I was going to go collegiately or not. And honestly, I'd, I'd been around that so so much uh, and doing GA duties and so forth. I saw those guys getting there at 5 in the morning, even, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And, uh, you know, I had a good buddy and, and uh, Mike Archer, who had been a GA and and I knew what kind of money he was making. Yep. <laughs> he would later go on and become the head coach at LSU under Bill, Bill uh, Arnsberger. But, um, you know, Mike and I talked about it extensively, and, and I just I decided to stay. This was home. I had a, a residence. You know, I was born and raised here and had great roots here, and I was, you know, um, I was blessed to have people around me that were very supportive. And so I, I decided I'd stay, stay here and Ultimately, they just sort of slid the position over and then uh, waited till the end of the year, and they would hire Tom Alvadotti, oh, yeah. who would later become their uh, coordinator, and he would be the coordinator during their championship run and their 83 national championship. Yeah, he was also to, I mean, many Miami Dolphin fans uh, did not like him and his defensive philosophies after Jimmy Johnson left, and the you know uh, I'm sorry. After uh, I think Jimmy Johnson let him go after the Jimmy Johnson's first season, he became the defensive coordinator of the Dolphins, and I don't think he was to blame. I think the lack of talent was to blame for the Dolphins. But I remember Oliver Dottie and and they ran like what you were talking about. Even then, they ran a fifty defense, but it was sort of like a thirty type of thing, and it could do both. But I think what a lot of people don't realize, Coach, um, when you talk about it, is like the amount of time, energy, effort 
that college coaches, college football coaches put in at a very low pay and they have to hustle around and they have to constantly change jobs and they have to recruit players and they have to never be at home. Like those guys that are all head coaches today, offensive, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, they've put in hundreds of thousands. Well, they've put in thousands of hours of time away from their families, moving their families every two or three years for the next job. So for you, I mean, obviously, in my mind, you made the best decision, you know, for your own sanity. Well, sanity and, and just in general health. Like I, yeah. Uh, I think everybody at that level, and, and I've seen you and I, I know me, I think the one thing that's endemic of all of us is, is you know, we tend to be uh, obsessive and, and yeah. you know, it, it really is consuming. And for me, Honestly, if I'd gone that route, I think I'd be dead now because, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody's satisfied until they become the head coach. And the only thing being better than a head coach is, you know, having a top 10 program. And the only thing better than that is being number one. You know, mm-hmm. the chase of that is is all consuming. And uh, it certainly has an impact on, on your health. I, you know, I have a buddy who, um, you know, is going through some health issues now, and I'm sure it's related to his stress, and that's, that's Mark Rick, who was a uh, part of that first group that, mm-hmm. that Lou Saban, uh, you know, recruited. And Mark is one of the finest people that you'll ever meet. And uh, he's, you know, he's going through some Parkinson's that probably goes back as early as 2012 when he was at uh, at Georgia. They, you know, he started having some issues where he couldn't he couldn't uh, taste things and so forth, and that's one of the earlier characteristics. And uh, talking to to, Matt, uh, to Mark and to Catherine when when they were here, you know, um, they were quite. You know, he was Catherine more than her. It was pretty candid about some of the things that they'd struggled with. And you know, he's he's in he's fighting for uh, you know to add years to his life right now. And um, great guy, you know, and a, a terrific coach. You will never again the credit he deserves at Georgia. You know, he took up a, a yep. program that had, you know, had been involved in a number of losing seasons and 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 took them right to the threshold. You know, he, he was so many different times. He won a couple SEC championships and knocked on the door of national titles. And again, if you if you're not number one, you're you know, you're with everybody else. And uh, you know, but I do think that he set the table for where that program is now. Well, a hundred percent. I've been talking a lot to a lot of different coaches and, and things of that nature within this podcast. And sometimes there's just an amount of luck. Like the difference between winning and losing sometimes is razor thin and it's out of your control. So someone like Coach Rick, you know, who who wants to be the best, who's working so hard, that has to take the toll on you, especially when so many times in his career he could have been national champion. He could have been a national champion multiple times if one or two things goes his way. One or two things randomly just goes his way. So I think that's a hard thing to deal with. And like for us, for high school coaches, the stakes are not nearly as high. But for him, it's like almost immortality or being a legend or you're talking about millions of millions of dollars. The difference between many winning and losing. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't be more correct. And and the one thing I'll say about Mark, and, and I mean, sincerely, he wasn't. Uh, I don't think he ever was chasing so much the dollars. 
Mark right. has, uh, you know, is just a, a genuinely wonderful guy who has, I mean, it's obviously it's cliche to say that everybody's trying to teach life lessons and making a difference in people's lives, but that really was his number one goal. And, uh, not that it, not that it, uh, that getting uh, having a national championship wasn't something he, you know, right. he targeted and something he certainly, again, using the word he assessed over, but, um, the periphery stuff was mighty important to him as well. And I think in the larger sense that he, you know, he may be made a bigger impact and, uh, you know, then, then he'll ever be, he'll ever be accredited with. And that's talking about the people that played for him and then the difference he had in their lives. And, you know, he, he really, he really took an interest in everything from their mental, emotional, physical, spiritual aspects. You know, he, he was all inclusive and, uh, the people that played for him, you know, sort of revere his, uh, revere his efforts. Well, I still look at him, you know, I still look at him as a fan when I was a kid as being the backup for Jim Kelly and getting a couple starts and, and really doing well at University of Miami and and remembering him there. But let's move forward because like we were talking about, it's football season. I might talk to you during baseball season about some of your baseball teams that I read about at yep. Cruel Shores. And, and this podcast is coming out. Today is Thursday. Tomorrow, Marathon and Coral Shores are playing, and I really wanted to have Coach on to go through some different years of this rivalry. And I'm going to say friendly rivalry, Coral Shores, Marathon High School. We have played each other 52 times. Coral Shores has won 27. Marathon has won 25 games, Coach. Um, I want to go through some years and and talk to you about some of those games. Are you ready, Coach? (laughs) You know, okay, well, you're putting me on the spot here. I'm putting, man. well, you know, I could always edit, coach. I could always edit. No, and, no, no, it's, it's fine. I, you know, I, I can speak in generality mm-hmm. before we don't talk to the specifics because, uh, yeah, I, you use the operative there. It's always been a friendly rivalry. And I, and for the vast majority of our fans and our players, it, it truly has been a friendly thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know I personally, Take great pride in, in the each of the Keys high schools as a as a whole. Naturally, when we're playing marathon, I'm passionate about beating marathon. Or if we play Key West, I'm passionately uh, trying to beat Key West. But when we're not playing each other, you know, I become their biggest fans. And so, uh, you know, that, I, that, I think I think everybody's like that. Coach Ahali said the same thing. He says I'm rooting for marathon and I'm rooting yeah. for Key West every single game unless they're playing us. You know, and I think that. Exactly. Everybody in the Keys has that same mentality, and I love it. Coach, Coach Coach Holly and I were talking last week, you know, like Key West and the Lower Keys, that's that small town over there, and Key West is their high school. Marathon, our area, Marathon High School, that's our small town high school, and you guys up there, Plantation Key, Key Largo, Isla Mirada, you guys are a small town, and your small town is Coral Shores, and we're always going to unite together, but... We always want to beat each other in every sport. So let's talk about some of these. Your senior year, Coach. Your senior year, Jim Sikora's first year at Marathon High School. He's coaching football. He is the first coach to beat Coral Shores, and, and they beat you guys 22 nothing. You have any memories of that game? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you, of course, do you remember those. Memories. As a matter of fact, we, uh, my senior year, we, got, we started out like a house of fire. Uh, we were a senior-laden team. And uh, 
it just seemed like one by one, folks dropped off. We played them late in the season. And uh, I think at that point in time, we had we had lost seven or eight of our of our starting players. And this is not in any way to make any excuses because, first of all, Jim did a great job, and his defensive coordinator was Bruce King. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bruce is legendary down there as a coach, more particularly for baseball, but he was a tremendous football coach as well. He's just, I mean, a great administrator, great guy. And, but well, some guy, you know, I, I admired Jim, uh, Jim Sakura and Bruce King tremendously. And, uh, you know, the side story was, uh, I, you know, Bruce King told me later on, he was trying to, they had targeted me to, to get me out of the ball game or something like that. <laughs> he, he was telling me that they, uh, they had orchestrated some, well, I, I shouldn't get into this, but they were trying to do little things to needle me and get me preoccupied. Probably, probably were more effective than that than they should were in that than they should have been. But uh, yeah, it was it was fairly sound uh, thumping. I don't think we ever got the ball inside their twenty yard line. And uh, you know, you always want to think that you can make a difference as a player or whatever. And I, I uh, obviously did not. We scored no, uh, zero points and and uh, we. We gave up twenty two. So, so that had to, that was the the first win for Marathon in that in that series. You come back as head coach in eighty one. In eighty three, you guys beat Marathon thirty three to fourteen. But I think the side story here is you have this quarterback, and I notice a trend with you. His name is Joe Secator. He was the Miami News Player of the Year. He threw 185 passes, 135 completions for 1,700 yards. In 1983, you were throwing the ball all over the place. Was that that had to have been the University of Miami connection in the pro style offense? What was it? Yeah, we literally ran the. Uh, I mean, obviously, a, a Reader's Digest version of the the Miami playbook, but we ran pro style, and uh, we, you know. We, we ran the simplest of plays and the, with the simplest of reads, but Joe is a tremendous athlete, great baseball player, caught for me as well, and uh, super kid. But, um, yeah, he, Joe Joe had real good command of our offense. And uh, to your point, you know, the years that I coached, I, I coached 81, 82, 83 seasons and then took a sabbatical and, and all candor. That was because we lost – uh, I lost seven players who played for me during that time frame. Seven kids died. Wow. Uh, it's it just a whole nother story. And I, you know, you talk about, you, you, I think if you coach, you coach because at the high school level, because you love the game and you love the kids and to, to lose seven kids that played for you is just incredible. Uh, it, it still baffles me. Yeah, so I, I stayed away from that. being a head coach. I assisted a little bit until I came back to the season of 88, and I coached 88 through 93. So you come back in 88, and that was a banner year for all the Keys teams. This is the year before Key West goes to the state championship game. But right. all three varsity teams go 25-7. and seven. Now, Coral Shores, you guys win the GAC football championship. You're Eight and two, your fifth in the state, your first trip to the playoffs. You win coach of the year, but with a rivalry game, all of that gets thrown out because Marathon beats you guys that year 19 to 7. 
I remember that well. And I, I tell you what, a marathon beat us, but more specifically, uh, Paul Davis beat us. Really? You know, oh, Paul Paul was a tremendous athlete, mm-hmm. you know, and he went on to, uh, and by the way, a, a wonderful guy. Uh, we tried our best to get him up here to coach, and, and uh, obviously his loyalty to marathon coach was something down in Key West. But what a quality guy, a tremendous football mind, but an even greater person. He, he's just first class. And uh, we were, we were, uh, uh, Paul had scored a touchdown from a quarterback position and we were driving for what would be a, you know, a tying touchdown. And uh, he jumped an out route and uh, he hasn't, he hasn't turned back. Mm. <laughs> it was a pick six. And uh, that score ended up being 19 to seven. If memory serves me correctly, we actually ended up eight and one. Mm-hmm. We, we only played nine games that season, and then uh, we came back and we were nine and one the following year. Oh, I'll get there. I'll get there. I'll, I'll get there. But we have. I, I I try, but I want to talk. You know, we talk about that that mar- You brought up that marathon football team, Coach Davis. I coached with him in Key West in marathon. He is a tremendous guy. I know he was a tremendous football player. That team marathon had that year was was fairly decent. I want to talk to you about you. Uh, obviously, the big Coach Davis played running back. He played probably. I'm sure he played corner there too. Uh, a running offense, probably running some option, but Troy Campbell was the big tailback then. Uh, what are your memories of him? Do you remember him? Troy was just a nightmare. Like I said, uh, and, and Paul, while he plays running back, played a little wide receiver. He was when uh, when Troy was, you know, in the backfield, it was predominantly him, and and Paul was was handing the ball off to him. But Paul was just, oh my gosh, uh, I'm sorry, Troy was just. Just fierce. I mean, first of all, he uh, great vision. One, you know, one cut guy. Um, well, everything you can say about a good running back had tremendous balance. Uh, didn't mind initiating a hit. And one of the, my, one of my favorite stories about Troy because he just, I mean, he, he's a big time Division One. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you just need more exposure. Um, <laughs> one of the classic things. I was sitting down. In the, I was down scouting them, uh, and I was in the corner of the end zone, and Almost Avan is the white hat. I know him. Yeah, yep. Okay, Almost wonderful guy. Absolutely. Wonderful guy, but he he made a call that I'd never seen before because uh, we're playing. We you guys are playing. Uh, you guys are playing Pinecrest, I think it was. And <laughs> Troy gets the ball, and and it's a sweep around the right side, and at the two yard line, there's. You know, two defenders, and he initiates contact, knocks both defenders into the end zone, scores standing up, and almost threw a 15-yard penalty. And I'm like, what's this one for? He called it on Troy for unnecessary roughness. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen that call before. Wow. That... <laughs> and that's, no, that's not discredit. I mean, I guess you could make the call. I mean, but the truth of the matter is, Troy could do that to just about anybody. <laughs> I think at any level, he was just a great athlete from what i heard the stories and stuff you know troy campbell was your prototypical i formation tailback where he was like six one six two two thirty five and and could really really run Is it, that's about right coach absolutely and and had the right mindset you know he he really did uh, and by the way they they run a little slip screen to him and so forth i mean he was uh he could bail you out of any situation and and they did a good job of 
maximizing, you know, his use. Um, Marathon, you know, they were very well coached. And I don't, I don't remember at that point if it was, uh, if Rick Hale was there, if Bill Simpson was there, I'm not even sure who, who was working. Uh, you know, I think it was Simpson. I think it was Simpson what? then, and Ralph Gentry was help. Is that his name? Ralph Gentry was helping. Yeah, Ralph him? Gentry uh, yeah. was with us for a little bit. Ralph was a tremendous coach. Um, and would take the helm for a couple of years and, and be involved in, in the worst defeat I ever had, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ralph was from, uh, had, he had, he had, Mary and mm-hmm. actually coached with, uh, Lou Holtz. Yeah. He had college experience. I remember Coach Davis telling me about what an impact Coach Gentry was on, was to him because, like, he was, he had college connections. And, and I think he played a big role in getting, getting Paul recruited and getting him placed in, in college and stuff like that. So that yeah, was, that was definitely right. something. That 88, like, 83, you have a Miami News player of the year. Then, then that 88, you have six Hurricanes All State. One of them, Miami News player of the year, Glenn Slayton, 1,200 yards, 7.1 yards a carry. So I guess you weren't throwing the ball all the time, huh, Coach? No, we left him back there a lot. To, at this point, we're running a lot of 12 personnel, uh-huh. a lot of double tight, double yeah. wide, and, we, and sometimes we just flex them out. And, you know, but uh, so we would have, you know, um, we would have him back there by himself oftentimes. Sometimes we'd put like a little H back, then run some full back with him. But uh, Glenn had the ability to, uh, you know, um, it, well, he forced people to keep, you know, he forced people to stay in the box. And so it did free up our quarterbacks. We, we had, if you look, we had uh, six guys in a row who, or six years in a row where we had all state quarterbacks, which I think is a Florida record. Yeah, I was, I was going to talk to you about that, coach. Like you go. I didn't know it was six years, but I saw in 1990 you have D Fernandez as quarterback, and he's he's first team All State. The next year you have David Snowden. The year after that you have Neil Curtis as All State. You beat Marathon fifty to nothing. Um, the year you're making up because the year prior Marathon beat you guys seventy one to six, and then in that was Ralph Gentry and yeah. That was in no way them running it up. We we literally, uh, we literally just went from a shotgun with no backs, and, and we were running an offense that would end up being come, called the fun gun at, 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 yeah. at Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was uh, the guy who actually put it together. And they, by the way, they ran it uh, uh, at Florida State with a guy that I had the privilege of coaching a little bit up at Furman Quarterbacks Coach uh, at camp, and that was um, Charlie Ward. Gotcha. He was the Heisman Trophy winner. Mm-hmm. Went on in the uh, in the NBA instead as point guard. But um, so my question I, I is though, my question is, you go three different years. You have three different incredible quarterbacks. Like, what are the odds of that? How how did that come to be? Like, you have D. Fernandez, David Snowden, and Neil Curtis. They all had to wait their senior year to play. Well. Actually, going back to 88, Doug Hill was the first of the people in that run. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Hill ended up being third team all state uh, as quarterback. And that was with that group with, uh, you know, Glenn Sladen and, and so forth. Uh, Felix Villaverde, who played, and Glenn and Felix both went out to uh, play to junior college in, in, uh, in California. And then Felix transferred and played at Liberty. He was starting wide receiver at Liberty. Um, but 
uh, just sorting around. Doug Doug went to UCF and walked on and made that ball club as their quarterback. Um, and that's sort of where we picked up more of the offense. D started for D Fernandez started for us as a junior, mm-hmm. and he was second team All State in '89, and then first team All State in '90, and then he was supplanted by uh, Snowden. Uh, yes, uh, David Snowden, who by, by the way it went to the academy in, in Annapolis and is a uh, is an officer in our in our naval uh, in our navy and very successful, and then Neil Curtis, who had uh, the previous year come out from football, but it had uh, academic issues and a couple other things. And um, I mean, he was eligible, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, felt it sort of necessary in his, his best interest to keep him out. But we worked with him all year long, you know, keep him out of playing, but worked with him all year long. And he came out next year and, and tore it up. Uh, I think we were seven and three that, maybe eight and two that year. And mm-hmm. then the following year, Matt Proskin moved in. Uh, his father had been watching us from afar. His father played for the Buffalo Bills, but they had a place here in Venetian Shores, which is yeah about five miles south of the school. And so Matt had been playing up in New Trier, uh, which is a suburb of, uh, or it's just outside of Chicago. And they brought him down here and uh, Matt tore it up for us. We needed a quarterback. And he became first team all state, and his running back was first team all state, and his wide receiver was a first team all state. Um, that was that was Matt's. Matt went on uh, and played collegiately, and then his running back was uh, Damon Kiki Scott. Yep, went to West Virginia. Twenty six touchdowns his senior year, most in Florida. You guys yeah, beat was, Marathon twenty one nothing that year. Yes, and, and I tell you what, Marathon was one of our tougher ball games. Um, they were loaded, uh, and I say they were loaded. They, I think, they had four Division One players. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, had, they had Sam Butler was there, who didn't go on, uh, but certainly had the talent to play quarter, uh, corner and was a great basketball player. Absolutely, uh, uh, Tony Bryant, who went on to Florida State and became a uh, might have been the first pick in the second round or something like that. Yeah, the, yeah, to the Raiders. The, yeah, and then uh, Odell Robbins is tremendous player. Tremendous. These are all great guys, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Odell Robbins uh, is still legendary, and he went to Florida, and I got dinged there. We probably, you know, you've been watching him on TV as well. Yeah. And then he had a tremendous kid in the secondary, played safety. His name is Damian Gibson. And Damian, if I'm not mistaken, either, I think he went to Iowa State. You are correct. Yes, he did. It was a D1 school. So they mm-hmm. they didn't have as good a supporting cast. Well, they had four Division One athletes there, and you know we we felt very fortunate to come out of that thing with a win. And that's amazing, you know. I mean, I'm sure you could count on your hand the number of times you played against schools that had four legitimate guys go Division One that year. You know what I mean? Absolutely. No, they uh, and they were all legit. Believe me, they were all well, very legit. You, I mean, Tony speaks for himself. I mean, you're a, a star at Florida State and. You know, he, I can't remember if he was the compensatory, like between the first and second round, if he was like first, second pick in the second round. But when you're in the first 35 picks of the draft, you're pretty much a stud. And and he was. And Odell was a stud. I mean, great player. And again, I can't say enough about it. was fun coaching against these guys because you get to know them later on, too. And 
and just all good folks. I, I really enjoyed Damien as well. So you move forward a, a couple years, and during 96 and 97, you guys marathon and Coral Shores for some reason. You guys, and some years you guys do this, you play each other twice. And in 96 and 97, Coral Shores, you win four in two years, 44-16, 28-0, 36-22, 43-32. But 97, that was the year uh, that Andre Garvey was the 2A player of the year and had something like 2,400 yards rushing and 25, 26 touchdowns. Head coach, I think, was Steve McAnally. Um, what are your memories of, of Andre, and how did you guys prepare to stop him? Because obviously you guys were effective. Well, I qualify. I actually got out. You know, I gave up the head coaching role in '93. We, okay. we had a terrible season, and I thought that was as good a time as any to get out. And uh, uh, the other thing, I, I focused a little bit more on baseball. I stayed with that. We we'd had some. We were fortunate to have some great baseball programs, uh, particularly in the '90s. But I, I was assisting off and on, and uh, I remember going down and watching on Garvey, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" You know. And, our coaching staff said, what do you think? And I said, I think we need to phone this one in. He was just, a, just a stud. I mean, he was just absolutely an outstanding ball player. And once again, you know, as things transpire, you find out he's an outstanding young man too. So, uh, Absolutely. Has quite, a, has quite a legacy. He and does. I, he's the pride of Marathon for sure. He coaches. He's been coaching at Marathon since about early 2001, 2002. He's the he's been there the whole time, and he's just a he's a fantastic guy. Um, before I move forward, before the, the word legend, and in my mind, he, he certainly qualifies as a legend. He, you know, he you won't find a better player, but you know, and I, I don't know him as well as I would like to. But everybody I talk to, I've never heard a bad word about him. And in fact, to the contrary. You know, folks just uh, speak reverently about him. So, and um, is you know, he's a wonderful asset to Marathon, but really to the entire Keys. Well, I'm, I'm going to find you tomorrow because this, like I said, this is coming out the day before we play. I'm going to find you tomorrow. I'm going to introduce the two of you guys tomorrow. Well, I, it's not that I won't recognize him. Oh I mean, yeah, it does. And uh, we've seen the back of his jersey a bunch too. <laughs> You know what what Andre tells tells me about what other people tell me about too, and I know that times change and we can't have it anymore. But we're going to take a minute. I know University of Miami did this, and Andre told me that you guys used to do this an alumni football game. You guys used to have the Coral Shores alumni play the marathon alumni and tackle football. Is that correct? You know, it seems unfathomable now. <laughs> And actually, um, we had we ended up having uh, two guys with major knee injuries the last time that we played. And believe it or not, um, at University of Miami, the mm-hmm. year after the national championship, um, we, we went up and had a tackle football game against their varsity. And the aforementioned George Hallis, I think, had something like 12 tackles in that game. Really? Yeah, he, he talks about that being his career highlight. <laughs> I, I think I, I remember as a kid, because I grew up in Miami, actually going to one or two of those things. I think it was usually at the end of, was it at the end of spring football that they would do it? It was, and we actually played it, we played at Green Tree. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're talking about, uh, well, 
you know, and I look back at it now and, and see it from a different perspective. But there are a couple guys there that were playing that were 40 years old, which they were ancient, you know? Right, but they put on the pads and play, man. Yeah. I mean, I was like, holy cow. And I, was, I remember I was just doing some research on uh, Key West's George Myra Jr. I'm sorry, George Myra Sr. And after he retired, that was something that he still did. He would play in that alumni game, and he talked about having to train for it and getting ready to go up to Miami to be the quarterback in the alumni game. I mean, how great is that? You know, George is such a great guy. And, and actually, we're working somewhere with, uh, with his brother Joe. He has a younger brother, Joe, who mm-hmm. played both football and baseball at, at Miami and at the university of Miami, um, obviously coming out of Key West, but George, I can remember, uh, I can remember when I was in, in school, he, he would gravitate toward the keys guys when he came over. And I think he was working with the dolphins. then. I think he was still playing with the dolphins. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you know, I, heard, I, I loved throwing the football. I always, you know, I grew up throwing and, and punting the football and, uh, and, I would go play burnout with Tim Kelly and play burnout with, you know, we get 30 yards into this kind of, and so, uh, you know, felt like I was accustomed to throwing the ball with guys that could really, I, I started throwing with, with George Myra and we're throwing at 30 yards and I'm thinking I'm going to lay it in pretty hard. The man threw the hardest and I'll say the heaviest football. And by that, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a heavy fastball or whatever mm-hmm. that sort of things. I mean, he could just bust your fingers at 30 yards. I, I, I don't have any idea what the velocity would be, but you know, you got all the you got all the stuff, you know, the Elway arms and all yep. the, the great arms that you hear about. I can't imagine any have having any stronger than than his. Well, you know, fact, George, well, the criticism was that he threw too hard, I guess. But. Absolutely. You know, just like out of Key West High School, he was almost unhittable as a pitcher his senior year, something like 23 and 3. And he was just completely untouchable in the state series when he went. And he was equal uh, as a prospect in baseball as he was in football. But he thought he'd make more money in football. So he went to University of Miami and it ended up working out for him. But back to the rivalry coming up tomorrow, Coral Shores Marathon playing up in Coral Shores, Coral Shores. Coach Holly's back. He was in Coral Shores before, and his record against Marathon is three and one. His first year, he beats Marathon twenty-five to thirteen. Uh, Twenty. His next year is thirty-three eighteen, then forty-seven nothing. Then we had that rain game that doesn't count. I remember that. I was up top in the box. We come up to Coral Shores. We're all ready to play. I think there's one series, and it just starts raining, and we end up canceling the game. Do you remember that, Coach? I do. Yeah. And then, of course, so like I said, three and one, the one loss coming in 2015 at Marathon, which was the barn burner, 16 to 13. Sammy Zambrano hits a field goal late for the win. So, you know, those are all great times. I hope everybody comes out to Coral Shores tomorrow at 7 p.m. to watch the rivalry game. I hope you guys enjoyed this retrospective back in time. And Coach, thanks for coming on, and I look forward to talking to you a lot more on this podcast. Sean, it's a privilege. Uh, Coach, i, I got to tell you, first of all, I'm an admirer of your work uh, as a coach. Always have been. And then secondly, I couldn't be more impressed by the homework. Your homework here. Hmm. You've uh, you sort of uh, 
shaking the animals. I mean, sort of rattled my brain a little bit and uh, brought back some some good memories. Well, um, I'm, I'm glad to help. And it's like, you know, sometimes I feel with the, the keys being so transient, sometimes there's there's not that history. And I think that's what this podcast is trying to provide to let people know, you know, things happened here before you got here. And a lot of cool things in sports and a lot of great athletes and great coaches and great administrators have come out of the Florida Keys. So I'm hoping to shed some light on that. Well, I, I, I appreciate you doing that. And I also appreciate the you know, the, the your promotion of the game because it is, it's the friendly rivalry. And I think that, mm-hmm. that needs to be emphasized. Um, obviously to be spirited. We want everybody cheering as hard as they can for their good guys, be they, be they marathon or Carl Shores. But when it's all said and done, guess what? We're, we're a bunch of these guys that, that are kindred in, in so many ways. And uh, we go back to cheering for each other against the, uh, the other guys. I can't say it any better. Thanks so much for coming on today, Coach, and I'm looking forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate you. All right. Have a great day. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Coach Rich Russell. I know that I enjoyed it. And just like Coach Robert James, Coach Russell is someone that I would like to have on the podcast uh, a couple times during the year. Just so, you know, we could talk to him about different times in Keys Sports, uh, in the Keys Sports Chronicle. You know, he could give his input on what happened then or what his thoughts were on this. So he's a guy that I really feel like we're going to bring in and we're going to have a lot of questions for him. So if you have any questions or you have any ideas or show topics, you know, you could email me at sports. It's going to be sports at keysweekly.com. You could go to my Facebook, which is uh, Florida Keys and Key West High School Sports History on Facebook. Email me or Facebook. Uh, those are the places. I would love your input on what you guys want to hear at the podcast. Like I think, like I said, this is a developing podcast. You know, we just started in August. We really want this place to be a spot that chronicles the history of the Florida Keys, their high school sports, what happened in sports then and what's going on now. So I definitely want your input. So you could find find me in those two places. Sports at keysweekly.com would be a good one. Okay. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Please recommend this on your social media or just send it to your friends or just just enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Really enjoy doing this. Have a great day. Thank you guys.